In two days, he saw Rupert Murdoch, his son James, and the management of their Wall Street Journal, Arthur Sulzberger, Jr., and the top executives at the New York Times, and executives at Time, Fortune, and other Time, Inc. magazines. I would love to help quality journalism, he later said. We can't depend on bloggers for our news. We need real reporting and editorial oversight more than ever. So I'd love to find a way to help people create digital products where they actually can make money. Since he had gotten people to pay for music, he hoped he could do the same for journalism. Publishers, however, turned out to be leery of his lifeline. It meant that they would have to give 30% of their revenue to Apple. But that wasn't the biggest problem. More important, the publishers feared that under his system, they would no longer have a direct relationship with their subscribers. They wouldn't have their email address and credit card number so they could bill them, communicate with them, and market new products to them. Instead, Apple would own the customers, bill them, and have their information in its own database. And because of its privacy policy, Apple would not share this information unless a customer gave explicit permission to do so. Jobs was particularly interested in striking a deal with the New York Times, which he felt was a great newspaper in danger of declining because it had not figured out how to charge for digital content. One of my personal projects this year, I've decided, is to try to help, whether they want it or not, the Times, he told me early in 2010. I think it's important to the country for them to figure it out. During his New York trip, he went to dinner with 50 top Times executives in the cellar private dining room at Prana, an Asian restaurant. He ordered a mango smoothie and a plain vegan pasta, neither of which was on the menu. There he showed off the iPad and explained how important it was to find a modest price point for digital content that consumers would accept. He drew a chart of possible prices and volume. How many readers would they have if the times were free? They already knew the answer to that extreme on the chart because they were giving it away free on the web already and had about 20 million regular visitors. And if they made it really expensive, they had data on that too. They charged print subscribers more than $300 a year and had about a million of them. You should go after the midpoint, which is about 10 million digital subscribers, he told them, and that means your digital subs should be very cheap and simple, one click and $5 a month at most. When one of the Times circulation executives insisted that the paper needed the email and credit card information for all of its subscribers, even if they subscribed through the App Store, Jobs said that Apple would not give it out. That angered the executive. It was unthinkable, he said, for the Times not to have that information. Well, you can ask them for it, but if they won't voluntarily give it to you, don't blame me, Jobs said. If you don't like it, don't use us. I'm not the one who got you in this jam. You're the ones who've spent the past five years giving away your paper online and not collecting anyone's credit card information.
Jobs also met privately with Arthur Sulzberger, Jr. He's a nice guy, and he's really proud of his new building, as he should be, Jobs said later. I talked to him about what I thought he ought to do, but then nothing happened. It took a year, but in April 2011, the Times started charging for its digital edition and selling some subscriptions through Apple, abiding by the policies that Jobs established. It did, however, decide to charge approximately four times the $5 monthly charge that Jobs had suggested. At the Times Life building, Times editor Rick Stengel played host. Jobs liked Stengel, who had assigned a talented team, led by Josh Quitner, to make a robust iPad version of the magazine each week. But he was upset to see Andy Serwer of Fortune there. Tearing up, he told Serwer how angry he still was about Fortune's story two years earlier, revealing details of his health and the stock options problems. You kicked me when I was down, he said. The bigger problem at Time, Inc. was the same as the one at the Times. The magazine company did not want Apple to own its subscribers and prevent it from having a direct billing relationship. Time, Inc. wanted to create apps that would direct readers to its own website in order to buy a subscription. Apple refused. When Time and other magazines submitted apps that did this, they were denied the right to be in the App Store. Jobs tried to negotiate personally with the CEO of Time Warner, Jeff Bucus, a savvy pragmatist with a no-bullshit charm to him. They had dealt with each other a few years earlier over video rights for the iPod Touch, even though Jobs had not been able to convince him to do a deal involving HBO's exclusive rights to show movies soon after their release, he admired Bucus's straight and decisive style. For his part, Bucus respected Jobs' ability to be both a strategic thinker and a master of the tiniest details. Steve can go readily from the overarching principles into the details, he said. When Jobs called Bucus about making a deal for Time, Inc. magazines on the iPad, he started off by warning that the print business sucks, that nobody really wants your magazines, and that Apple was offering a great opportunity to sell digital subscriptions, but your guys don't get it. Bucus didn't agree with any of those premises. He said he was happy for Apple to sell digital subscriptions for Time, Inc. Apple's 30% take was not the problem. I'm telling you right now, if you sell a sub for us, you can have 30%, Bucus told him. Well, that's more progress than I've made with anybody, Jobs replied. I have only one question, Bucus continued. If you sell a subscription to my magazine and I give you the 30%, who has the subscription, you or me? I can't give away all the subscriber info because of Apple's privacy policy, Jobs replied. Well, then, we have to figure something else out, because I don't want my whole subscription base to become subscribers of yours for you to then aggregate at the Apple Store, said Bucus. And the next thing you'll do once you have a monopoly 
is come back and tell me that my magazine shouldn't be $4 a copy, but instead should be $1. If someone subscribes to our magazine, we need to know who it is. We need to be able to create online communities of those people, and we need the right to pitch them directly about renewing. Jobs had an easier time with Rupert Murdoch, whose News Corp owned the Wall Street Journal, New York Post, newspapers around the world, Fox Studios, and the Fox News Channel. When Jobs met with Murdoch and his team, they also pressed the case that they should share ownership of the subscribers that came in through the App Store. But when Jobs refused, something interesting happened. Murdoch is not known as a pushover, but he knew that he did not have the leverage on this issue, so he accepted Jobs' terms. We would prefer to own the subscribers, and we pushed for that, recalled Murdoch, but Steve wouldn't do a deal on those terms, so I said, okay, let's get on with it. We didn't see any reason to mess around. He wasn't going to bend, and I wouldn't have bent if I were in his position, so I just said, yes. Murdoch even launched a digital-only daily newspaper, The Daily, tailored specifically for the iPad. It would be sold in the App Store, on the terms dictated by Jobs, at 99 cents a week. Murdoch himself took a team to Cupertino to show the proposed design. Not surprisingly, Jobs hated it. Would you allow our designers to help, he asked. Murdoch accepted. The Apple designers had a crack at it, Murdoch recalled, and our folks went back and had another crack, and ten days later we went back and showed them both, and he actually liked our team's version better. It stunned us. The Daily, which was neither tabloidy nor serious, but instead a rather mid-market product like USA Today, was not very successful but it did help create an odd couple bonding between Jobs and Murdoch. When Murdoch asked him to speak at his June 2010 News Corp annual management retreat, Jobs made an exception to his rule of never doing such appearances. James Murdoch led him in an after-dinner interview that lasted almost two hours. He was very blunt and critical of what newspapers were doing in technology, Murdoch recalled. He told us we were going to find it hard to get things right, because you're in New York, and anyone who's any good at tech works in Silicon Valley. This did not go down very well with the president of the Wall Street Journal Digital Network, Gordon McLeod, who pushed back a bit. At the end, McLeod came up to Jobs and said, Thanks, it was a wonderful evening, but you probably just cost me my job. Murdoch chuckled a bit when he described the scene to me. It ended up being true, he said. McLeod was out within three months. In return for speaking at the retreat, Jobs got Murdoch to hear him out on Fox News, which he believed was destructive, harmful to the nation, and a blot on Murdoch's reputation. You're blowing it with Fox News, Jobs told him over dinner. The axis today is not liberal and conservative. The axis is constructive, destructive. And you've cast your lot with the destructive people.
Fox has become an incredibly destructive force in our society. You can be better, and this is going to be your legacy if you're not careful. Jobs said he thought Murdoch did not really like how far Fox had gone. Rupert's a builder, not a terror downer, he said. I've had some meetings with James, and I think he agrees with me. I can just tell. Murdoch later said he was used to people like Jobs complaining about Fox. He's got sort of a left-wing view on this, he said. Jobs asked him to have his folks make a reel of a week of Sean Hannity and Glenn Beck shows. He thought that they were more destructive than Bill O'Reilly, and Murdoch agreed to do so. Jobs later told me that he was going to ask John Stewart's team to put together a similar reel for Murdoch to watch. I'd be happy to see it, Murdoch said, but he hasn't sent it to me. Murdoch and Jobs hit it off well enough that Murdoch went to his Palo Alto house for dinner twice more during the next year. Jobs joked that he had to hide the dinner knives on such occasions because he was afraid that his liberal wife was going to eviscerate Murdoch when he walked in. For his part, Murdoch was reported to have uttered a great line about the organic vegan dishes typically served. Eating dinner at Steve's is a great experience, as long as you get out before the local restaurants close. Alas, when I asked Murdoch if he had ever said that, he didn't recall it. One visit came early in 2011. Murdoch was due to pass through Palo Alto on February 24th, and he texted Jobs to tell him so. He didn't know it was Jobs' 56th birthday and Jobs didn't mention it when he texted back inviting him to dinner. It was my way of making sure Lorene didn't veto the plan, Jobs joked. It was my birthday, so she had to let me have Rupert over. Aaron and Eve were there, and Reed jogged over from Stanford near the end of the dinner. Jobs showed off the designs for his planned boat, which Murdoch thought looked beautiful on the inside, but a bit plain on the outside. It certainly shows great optimism about his health that he was talking so much about building it, Murdoch later said. At dinner, they talked about the importance of infusing an entrepreneurial and nimble culture in a company. Sony failed to do that, Murdoch said. Jobs agreed. I used to believe that a really big company couldn't have a clear corporate culture, Jobs said. But I now believe it can be done. Murdoch's done it. I think I've done it at Apple. Most of the dinner conversation was about education. Murdoch had just hired Joel Klein, the former chancellor of the New York City Department of Education, to start a digital curriculum division. Murdoch recalled that Jobs was somewhat dismissive of the idea that technology could transform education but Jobs agreed with Murdoch that the paper textbook business would be blown away by digital learning materials. In fact, Jobs had his sights set on textbooks as the next business he wanted to transform. He believed it was an $8 billion a year industry ripe for digital destruction. He was also struck by the fact that many schools, for security reasons, don't have lockers so kids have to lug a heavy backpack around. The iPad would solve that, he said, 
His idea was to hire great textbook writers to create digital versions and make them a feature of the iPad. In addition, he held meetings with the major publishers, such as Pearson Education, about partnering with Apple. The process by which states certify textbooks is corrupt, he said, but if we can make the textbooks free and they come with the iPad, then they don't have to be certified. The crappy economy at the state level will last for a decade, and we can give them an opportunity to circumvent that whole process and save money. Chapter 39 New Battles and Echoes of Old Ones Google, Open versus Closed a few days after he unveiled the iPad in January 2010, Jobs had a town hall meeting with employees at Apple's campus. Instead of exulting about their transformative new product, however, he went into a rant against Google for producing the rival Android operating system. Jobs was furious that Google had decided to compete with Apple in the phone business. We did not enter the search business, he said. They entered the phone business. Make no mistake, they want to kill the iPhone. We won't let them. A few minutes later, after the meeting moved on to another topic, Jobs returned to his tirade to attack Google's famous values slogan. I want to go back to that other question first and say one more thing. This don't be evil mantra, it's bullshit. Jobs felt personally betrayed. Google's CEO, Eric Schmidt, had been on the Apple board during the development of the iPhone and iPad, and Google's founders, Larry Page and Sergey Brin, had treated him as a mentor. He felt ripped off. Android's touchscreen interface was adopting more and more of the features, multi-touch, swiping, a grid of app icons, that Apple had created. Jobs had tried to dissuade Google from developing Android. He had gone to Google's headquarters near Palo Alto in 2008 and gotten into a shouting match with Page, Bryn, and the head of the Android development team, Andy Rubin. Because Schmidt was then on the Apple board, he recused himself from discussions involving the iPhone. I said we would, if we had good relations, guarantee Google access to the iPhone and guarantee it one or two icons on the home screen, he recalled. But he also threatened that if Google continued to develop Android and used any iPhone features, such as multi-touch, he would sue. At first, Google avoided copying certain features, but in January 2010, HTC introduced an Android phone that boasted multi-touch and many other aspects of the iPhone's look and feel. That was the context for Jobs' pronouncement that Google's Don't Be Evil slogan was bullshit. So Apple filed suit against HTC, and by extension Android, alleging infringement of 20 of its patents. Among them were patents covering various multi-touch gestures, swipe to open, double-tap to zoom, pinch and expand, and the sensors that determined how a device was being held. 
As he sat in his house in Palo Alto the week the lawsuit was filed, he became angrier than I had ever seen him. Our lawsuit is saying, Google, you fucking ripped off the iPhone. Wholesale ripped us off. Grand theft. I will spend my last dying breath if I need to, and I will spend every penny of Apple's $40 billion in the bank to right this wrong. I'm going to destroy Android because it's a stolen product. I'm willing to go to thermonuclear war on this. They are scared to death because they know they are guilty. Outside of search, Google's products, Android, Google Docs, are shit. A few days after this rant, Jobs got a call from Schmidt, who had resigned from the Apple board the previous summer. He suggested they get together for coffee, and they met at a cafe in a Palo Alto shopping center. We spent half the time talking about personal matters, then half the time on his perception that Google had stolen Apple's user interface designs, recalled Schmidt. When it came to the latter subject, Jobs did most of the talking. Google had ripped him off, he said in colorful language. We've got you red-handed, he told Schmidt. I'm not interested in settling. I don't want your money. If you offer me five billion dollars, I won't want it. I've got plenty of money. I want you to stop using our ideas in Android. That's all I want. They resolved nothing. Underlying the dispute was an even more fundamental issue, one that had unnerving historical resonance. Google presented Android as an open platform. Its open source code was freely available for multiple hardware makers to use on whatever phones or tablets they built. Jobs, of course, had a dogmatic belief that Apple should closely integrate its operating systems with its hardware. In the 1980s, Apple had not licensed out its Macintosh operating system, and Microsoft eventually gained dominant market share by licensing its system to multiple hardware makers and, in Jobs' mind, ripping off Apple's interface. The comparison between what Microsoft wrought in the 1980s and what Google was trying to do in 2010 was not exact, but it was close enough to be unsettling and infuriating. It exemplified the great debate of the digital age, closed versus open, or as Jobs framed it, integrated versus fragmented. Was it better, as Apple believed, and as Jobs' own controlling perfectionism almost compelled, to tie the hardware and software and content handling into one tidy system that ensured a simple user experience? Or was it better to give users and manufacturers more choice and free up avenues for more innovation by creating software systems that could be modified and used on different devices? Steve has a particular way that he wants to run Apple, and it's the same as it was 20 years ago, which is that Apple is a brilliant innovator of closed systems, Schmidt later told me. They don't want people to be on their platform without permission. The benefit of a closed platform is control. But Google has a specific belief that open is the better approach, because it leads to more options and competition 
and consumer choice. So what did Bill Gates think as he watched Jobs, with his closed strategy, go into battle against Google as he had done against Microsoft 25 years earlier? There are some benefits to being more closed in terms of how much you control the experience, and certainly at times he's had the benefit of that, Gates told me. But refusing to license the Apple iOS, he added, gave competitors like Android the chance to gain greater volume. In addition, he argued, competition among a variety of devices and manufacturers leads to greater consumer choice and more innovation. These companies are not all building pyramids next to Central Park, he said, poking fun at Apple's Fifth Avenue store, but they are coming up with innovations based on competing for consumers. Most of the improvements in PCs, Gates pointed out, came because consumers had a lot of choices, and that would someday be the case in the world of mobile devices. Eventually, I think, open will succeed, but that's where I come from. In the long run, the coherence thing, you can't stay with that. Jobs believed in the coherence thing. His faith in a controlled and closed environment remained unwavering, even as Android gained market share. Google says we exert more control than they do, that we are closed and they are open, he railed when I told him what Schmidt had said. Well, look at the results. Android's a mess. It has different screen sizes and versions, over a hundred permutations. Even if Google's approach might eventually win in the marketplace, Jobs found it repellent. I like being responsible for the whole user experience. We do it not to make money. We do it because we want to make great products, not crap like Android. Flash, the App Store and Control Jobs' insistence on end-to-end -end control was manifested in other battles as well. At the town hall meeting where he attacked Google, he also assailed Adobe's multimedia platform for websites, Flash, as a buggy battery hog made by lazy people. The iPod and iPhone, he said, would never run Flash. Flash is a spaghetti ball piece of technology that has lousy performance and really bad security problems, he said to me later that week. He even banned apps that made use of a compiler created by Adobe that translated Flash code so that it would be compatible with Apple's iOS. Jobs disdained the use of compilers that allowed developers to write their products once and have them ported to multiple operating systems. Allowing Flash to be ported across platforms means things get dumbed down to the lowest common denominator, he said. We spend lots of effort to make our platform better, and the developer doesn't get any benefit if Adobe only works with functions that every platform has. So we said that we want developers to take advantage of our better features so that their apps work better on our platform than they work on anybody else's. On that, he was right. Losing the ability to differentiate Apple's platforms 
allowing them to become commoditized like HP and Dell machines would have meant death for the company. There was, in addition, a more personal reason. Apple had invested in Adobe in 1985, and together the two companies had launched the desktop publishing revolution. I helped put Adobe on the map, Jobs claimed. In 1999, after he returned to Apple, he had asked Adobe to start making its video editing software and other products for the iMac and its new operating system, but Adobe refused. It focused on making its products for Windows. Soon after, its founder, John Warnock, retired. The soul of Adobe disappeared when Warnock left, Jobs said. He was the inventor, the person I related to. It's been a bunch of suits since then, and the company has turned out crap. When Adobe evangelists and various Flash supporters in the blogosphere attacked Jobs for being too controlling, he decided to write and post an open letter. Bill Campbell, his friend and board member, came by his house to go over it. Does it sound like I'm just trying to stick it to Adobe? he asked Campbell. No, it's facts. Just put it out there, the coach said. Most of the letter focused on the technical drawbacks of Flash, but despite Campbell's coaching, Jobs couldn't resist venting at the end about the problematic history between the two companies. Adobe was the last major third-party developer to fully adopt Mac OS X, he noted. Apple ended up lifting some of its restrictions on cross-platform compilers later in the year, and Adobe was able to come out with a Flash authoring tool that took advantage of the key features of Apple's iOS. It was a bitter war, but one in which Jobs had the better argument. In the end, it pushed Adobe and other developers of compilers to make better use of the iPhone and iPad interface and its special features. Jobs had a tougher time navigating the controversies over Apple's desire to keep tight control over which apps could be downloaded onto the iPhone and iPad. Guarding against apps that contained viruses or violated the user's privacy made sense. Preventing apps that took users to other websites to buy subscriptions rather than doing it through the iTunes store at least had a business rationale. But Jobs and his team went further. They decided to ban any app that defamed people, might be politically explosive, or was deemed by Apple's censors to be pornographic. The problem of playing nanny became apparent when Apple rejected an app featuring the animated political cartoons of Mark Fiore, on the rationale that his attacks on the Bush administration's policy on torture violated the restriction against defamation. Its decision became public and was subjected to ridicule when Fiore won the 2010 Pulitzer Prize for editorial cartooning in April. Apple had to reverse itself, and Jobs made a public apology. We're guilty of making mistakes, he said. We're doing the best we can. We're learning as fast as we can. But we thought this rule made sense. It was more than a mistake. 
It raised the specter of Apple's controlling what apps we got to see and read, at least if we wanted to use an iPad or iPhone. Jobs seemed in danger of becoming the Orwellian big brother he had gleefully destroyed in Apple's 1984 Macintosh ad. He took the issue seriously. One day he called the New York Times columnist, Tom Friedman, to discuss how to draw lines without looking like a censor. He asked Friedman to head an advisory group to help come up with guidelines, but the columnist's publisher said it would be a conflict of interest and no such committee was formed. The pornography ban also caused problems. We believe we have a moral responsibility to keep porn off the iPhone, Jobs declared in an email to a customer. Folks who want porn can buy an Android. This prompted an email exchange with Ryan Tate, the editor of the tech gossip site Valleywag. Sipping a Stinger cocktail one evening, Tate shot off an email to Jobs decrying Apple's heavy-handed control over which apps passed muster. If Dylan was 20 today, how would he feel about your company? Tate asked. Would he think the iPad had the faintest thing to do with revolution? Revolutions are about freedom. To Tate's surprise, Jobs responded a few hours later after midnight. Yep, he said, freedom from programs that steal your private data, freedom from programs that trash your battery, freedom from porn. Yep, freedom. The times they are changing, and some traditional PC folks feel like their world is slipping away. It is. In his reply, Tate offered some thoughts on Flash and other topics, then returned to the censorship issue. And you know what? I don't want freedom from porn. Porn is just fine, and I think my wife would agree. You might care more about porn when you have kids, replied Jobs. It's not about freedom. It's about Apple trying to do the right thing for its users. At the end, he added a zinger. By the way, what have you done that's so great? Do you create anything or just criticize others' work and belittle their motivations? Tate admitted to being impressed. Rare is the CEO who will spar one-on-one -on -one with customers and bloggers like this, he wrote. Jobs deserves big credit for breaking the mold of the typical American executive and not just because his company makes such hugely superior products. Jobs not only built and then rebuilt his company around some very strong opinions about digital life, but he's willing to defend them in public, vigorously, bluntly, at two in the morning on a weekend. Many in the blogosphere agreed, and they sent Jobs emails praising his feistiness. Jobs was proud as well. He forwarded his exchange with Tate and some of the kudos to me. Still, there was something unnerving about Apple's decreeing that those who bought their products shouldn't look at controversial political cartoons or, for that matter, porn. The humor site, eSarcasm.com, launched a Yes, Steve, I Want Porn web campaign. We are dirty, sex-obsessed miscreants 
who need access to smut 24 hours a day, the site declared. Either that, or we just enjoy the idea of an uncensored, open society where a techno-dictator doesn't decide what we can and cannot see. At the time, Jobs and Apple were engaged in a battle with Valley Wag's affiliated website, Gizmodo, which had gotten hold of a test version of the unreleased iPhone 4 that a hapless Apple engineer had left in a bar. When the police, responding to Apple's complaint, raided the house of the reporter, it raised the question of whether control freakiness had combined with arrogance. John Stewart was a friend of Jobs and an Apple fan. Jobs had visited him privately in February when he took his trip to New York to meet with media executives. But that didn't stop Stewart from going after him on The Daily Show. It wasn't supposed to be this way. Microsoft was supposed to be the evil one, Stewart said, only half jokingly. Behind him, the word App holes appeared on the screen. You guys were the rebels, man, the underdogs. But now, are you becoming the man? Remember back in 1984, you had those awesome ads about overthrowing Big Brother? Look in the mirror, man! By late spring, the issue was being discussed among board members. There is an arrogance. Art Levinson told me over lunch, just after he had raised it at a meeting. It ties into Steve's personality. He can react viscerally and lay out his convictions in a forceful manner. Such arrogance was fine when Apple was the feisty underdog, but now Apple was dominant in the mobile market. We need to make the transition to being a big company and dealing with the hubris issue, said Levinson. Al Gore also talked about the problem at board meetings. The context for Apple is changing dramatically, he recounted. It's not hammer thrower against Big Brother. Now Apple's big, and people see it as arrogant. Jobs became defensive when the topic was raised. He's still adjusting to it, said Gore. He's better at being the underdog than being a humble giant. Jobs had little patience for such talk. The reason Apple was being criticized, he told me then, was that companies like Google and Adobe are lying about us and trying to tear us down. What did he think of the suggestion that Apple sometimes acted arrogantly? I'm not worried about that, he said, because we're not arrogant. Antennagate Design versus Engineering In many consumer product companies, there's tension between the designers, who want to make a product look beautiful, and the engineers, who need to make sure it fulfills its functional requirements. At Apple, where Jobs pushed both design and engineering to the edge, that tension was even greater. When he and design director Johnny Ive became creative co-conspirators back in 1997, they tended to view the qualms expressed by engineers as evidence of a can't-do attitude that needed to be overcome. 
Their faith that awesome design could force superhuman feats of engineering was reinforced by the success of the iMac and iPod. When engineers said something couldn't be done, Ivan Jobs pushed them to try, and usually they succeeded. There were occasional small problems. The iPod Nano, for example, was prone to getting scratched because I've believed that a clear coating would lessen the purity of his design. But that was not a crisis. When it came to designing the iPhone, I've design desires bumped into a fundamental law of physics that could not be changed even by a reality distortion field. Metal is not a great material to put near an antenna. As Michael Faraday showed, electromagnetic waves flow around the surface of metal, not through it. So a metal enclosure around a phone can create what is known as a Faraday cage, diminishing the signals that get in or out. The original iPhone started with a plastic band at the bottom, but I've thought that would wreck the design integrity and asked that there be an aluminum rim all around. After that ended up working out, I've designed the iPhone 4 with a steel rim. The steel would be the structural support, look really sleek, and serve as part of the phone's antenna. There were significant challenges. In order to serve as an antenna, the steel rim had to have a tiny gap. But if a person covered that gap with a finger or sweaty palm, there could be some signal loss. The engineers suggested a clear coating over the metal to help prevent this, but again I felt that this would detract from the brushed metal look. The issue was presented to Jobs at various meetings, but he thought the engineers were crying wolf. You can make this work, he said. And so they did. And it worked, almost perfectly, but not totally perfectly. When the iPhone 4 was released in June 2010, it looked awesome. But a problem soon became evident. If you held the phone a certain way, especially using your left hand so your palm covered the tiny gap, you could lose your connection. It occurred with perhaps one in a hundred calls. Because Jobs insisted on keeping his unreleased product secret, even the phone that Gizmodo scored in a bar had a fake case around it, the iPhone 4 did not go through the live testing that most electronic devices get. So the flaw was not caught before the massive rush to buy it began. The question is whether the twin policies of putting design in front of engineering and having a policy of super-secrecy surrounding unreleased products helped Apple. Tony Fidel said later, On the whole, yes. But unchecked power is a bad thing, and that's what happened. Had it not been the Apple iPhone 4, a product that had everyone transfixed, the issue of a few extra dropped calls would not have made news but it became known as Antenna Gate, and it boiled to a head in early July when Consumer Reports did some rigorous tests and said that it could not recommend the iPhone 4 because of the antenna problem. Jobs was in Kona Village, Hawaii, with his family when the issue arose. At first he was defensive, 
Art Levinson was in constant contact by phone, and Jobs insisted that the problem stemmed from Google and Motorola making mischief. They want to shoot Apple down, he said. Levinson urged a little humility. Let's try to figure out if there's something wrong, he said. When he again mentioned the perception that Apple was arrogant, Jobs didn't like it. It went against his black-white, right-wrong way of viewing the world. Apple was a company of principle, he felt. If others failed to see that, it was their fault, not a reason for Apple to play humble. Jobs' second reaction was to be hurt. He took the criticism personally and became emotionally anguished. At his core, he doesn't do things that he thinks are blatantly wrong, like some pure pragmatists in our business, Levinson said. So if he feels he's right, he will just charge ahead rather than question himself. Levinson urged him not to get depressed, but Jobs did. Fuck this. It's not worth it, he told Levinson. Finally, Tim Cook was able to shake him out of his lethargy. He quoted someone as saying that Apple was becoming the new Microsoft, complacent and arrogant. The next day, Jobs changed his attitude. Let's get to the bottom of this, he said. When the data about dropped calls were assembled from AT&T, Jobs realized there was a problem, even if it was more minor than people were making it seem. So he flew back from Hawaii, but before he left, he made some phone calls. It was time to gather a couple of trusted old hands, wise men who had been with him during the original Macintosh days thirty years earlier. His first call was to Regis McKenna, the public relations guru. I'm coming back from Hawaii to deal with this antenna thing, and I need to bounce some stuff off of you, Jobs told him. They agreed to meet at the Cupertino boardroom at 1.30 the next afternoon. The second call was to the ad man, Lee Clow. He had tried to retire from the Apple account, but Jobs liked having him around. His colleague James Vincent was summoned as well. Jobs also decided to bring his son Reed, then a high school senior, back with him from Hawaii. I'm going to be in meetings 24-7 for probably two days, and I want you to be in every single one, because you'll learn more in those two days than you would in two years at business school, he told him. You're going to be in the room with the best people in the world making really tough decisions and get to see how the sausage is made. Jobs got a little misty-eyed when he recalled the experience. I would go through that all again just for that opportunity to have him see me at work, he said. He got to see what his dad does. They were joined by Katie Cotton, the steady public relations chief at Apple, and seven other top executives. The meeting lasted all afternoon. It was one of the greatest meetings of my life. Jobs later said. He began by laying out all the data they had gathered. Here are the facts, so what should we do about it? McKenna was the most calm and straightforward. Just lay out the truth, the data, he said. Don't appear arrogant, but appear firm and confident. Others, including Vincent, pushed Jobs to be more apologetic, 
but McKenna said no. Don't go into the press conference with your tail between your legs, he advised. You should just say, phones aren't perfect, and we're not perfect. We're human, and doing the best we can, and here's the data. That became the strategy. When the topic turned to the perception of arrogance, McKenna urged him not to worry too much. I don't think it would work to try to make Steve look humble, McKenna explained later. As Steve says about himself, what you see is what you get. At the press event that Friday, held in Apple's auditorium, Jobs followed McKenna's advice. He did not grovel or apologize, yet he was able to diffuse the problem by showing that Apple understood it and would try to make it right. Then he changed the framework of the discussion, saying that all cell phones had some problems. Later he told me that he had sounded a bit too annoyed at the event, but in fact he was able to strike a tone that was unemotional and straightforward. He captured it in four short declarative sentences. We're not perfect. Phones are not perfect. We all know that. But we want to make our users happy. If anyone was unhappy, he said, they could return the phone. The return rate turned out to be 1.7%, less than a third of the return rate for the iPhone 3GS or most other phones, or get a free bumper case from Apple. He went on to report data showing that other mobile phones had similar problems. That was not totally true. Apple's antenna design made it slightly worse than most other phones, including earlier versions of the iPhone. But it was true that the media frenzy over the iPhone 4's dropped calls was overblown. This is blown so out of proportion that it's incredible, he said. Instead of being appalled that he didn't grovel or order a recall, most customers realized that he was right. The waitlist for the phone, which was already sold out, went from two weeks to three. It remained the company's fastest-selling product ever. The media debate shifted to the issue of whether Jobs was right to assert that other smartphones had the same antenna problems. Even if the answer was no, that was a better story to face than one about whether the iPhone 4 was a defective dud. Some media observers were incredulous. In a bravura demonstration of stonewalling, righteousness, and hurt sincerity, Steve Jobs successfully took to the stage the other day to deny the problem, dismiss the criticism, and spread the blame among other smartphone makers. Michael Wolf of Newser.com wrote, This is a level of modern marketing, corporate spin, and crisis management about which you can only ask with stupefied incredulity and awe, how do they get away with it? Or more accurately, how does he get away with it? Wolf attributed it to Jobs' mesmerizing effect as the last charismatic individual. Other CEOs would be offering abject apologies and swallowing massive recalls, but Jobs didn't have to. The grim, skeletal appearance, the absolutism, the ecclesiastical bearing, the sense of his relationship with the sacred really works. 
and in this instance allows him the privilege of magisterially deciding what is meaningful and what is trivial. Scott Adams, the creator of the cartoon strip Dilbert, was also incredulous, but far more admiring. He wrote a blog entry a few days later, which Jobs proudly emailed around, that marveled at how Jobs's high-ground maneuver was destined to be studied as a new public relations standard. Apple's response to the iPhone 4 problem didn't follow the public relations playbook because Jobs decided to rewrite the playbook, Adams wrote. If you want to know what genius looks like, study Jobs's words. By proclaiming up front that phones are not perfect, Jobs changed the context of the argument with an indisputable assertion. If Jobs had not changed the context from the iPhone 4 to all smartphones in general, I could make you a hilarious comic strip about a product so poorly made that it won't work if it comes in contact with a human hand. But as soon as the context is changed to all smartphones have problems, the humor opportunity is gone. Nothing kills humor like a general and boring truth. Here comes the sun. There were a few things that needed to be resolved for the career of Steve Jobs to be complete. Among them was an end to the thirty years' war with the band he loved, the Beatles. In 2007, Apple had settled its trademark battle with Apple Corps, the holding company of the Beatles, which had first sued the fledgling computer company over use of the name in 1978. But that still did not get the Beatles into the iTunes store. The band was the last major holdout, primarily because it had not resolved with EMI Music, which owned most of its songs, How to Handle the Digital Rights. By the summer of 2010, the Beatles and EMI had sorted things out, and a four-person summit was held in the boardroom in Cupertino. Jobs and his vice president for the iTunes store, Eddie Q, played host to Jeff Jones, who managed the Beatles' interests, and Roger Faxon, the chief of EMI Music. Now that the Beatles were ready to go digital, what could Apple offer to make that milestone special? Jobs had been anticipating this day for a long time. In fact, he and his advertising team, Lee Clow and James Vincent, had mocked up some ads and commercials three years earlier when strategizing on how to lure the Beatles on board. Steve and I thought about all the things that we could possibly do, Q recalled. That included taking over the front page of the iTunes store, buying billboards featuring the best photographs of the band, and running a series of television ads in classic Apple style. The topper was offering a $149 box set that included all 13 Beatles studio albums, the two-volume Past Masters collection, and a nostalgia-inducing video of the 1964 Washington Coliseum concert. Once they reached an agreement in principle, Jobs personally helped choose the photographs for the ads. Each commercial ended with a still black-and-white shot of Paul McCartney and John Lennon, young and smiling, 
in a recording studio looking down at a piece of music. It evoked the old photographs of Jobs and Wozniak looking at an Apple circuit board. Getting the Beatles on iTunes was the culmination of why we got into the music business, said Q. Chapter 40 To Infinity The Cloud, the Spaceship, and Beyond The iPad 2 Even before the iPad went on sale, Jobs was thinking about what should be in the iPad 2. It needed front and back cameras, everyone knew that was coming, and he definitely wanted it to be thinner. But there was a peripheral issue that he focused on that most people hadn't thought about. The cases that people used covered the beautiful lines of the iPad and detracted from the screen. They made fatter what should be thinner. They put a pedestrian cloak on a device that should be magical in all of its aspects. Around that time, he read an article about magnets, cut it out, and handed it to Johnny Ive. The magnets had a cone of attraction that could be precisely focused. Perhaps they could be used to align a detachable cover. That way, it could snap onto the front of an iPad, but not have to engulf the entire device. One of the guys in Ive's group worked out how to make a detachable cover that could connect with a magnetic hinge. When you began to open it, the screen would pop to life like the face of a tickled baby, and then the cover could fold into a stand. It was not high-tech, it was purely mechanical, but it was enchanting. It also was another example of Jobs' desire for end-to-end -end integration. The cover and the iPad had been designed together, so that the magnets and hinge all connected seamlessly. The iPad 2 would have many improvements, but this cheeky little cover, which most other CEOs would never have bothered with, was the one that would elicit the most smiles. Because Jobs was on another medical leave, he was not expected to be at the launch of the iPad 2, scheduled for March 2nd, 2011, in San Francisco. But when the invitations were sent out, he told me that I should try to be there. It was the usual scene, top Apple executives in the front row, Tim Cook eating energy bars, and the sound system blaring the appropriate Beatles songs, building up to, you say you want a revolution, and here comes the sun. Reed Jobs arrived at the last minute with two rather wide-eyed freshman dorm mates. We've been working on this product for a while, and I just didn't want to miss today, Jobs said as he ambled on stage, looking scarily gaunt, but with a jaunty smile. The crowd erupted in whoops, hollers, and a standing ovation. He began his demo of the iPad 2 by showing off the new cover. This time, the case and the product were designed together, he explained. Then he moved on to address a criticism that had been rankling him because it had some merit. The original iPad had been better at consuming content than at creating it. So Apple had adapted its two best creative applications for the Macintosh, GarageBand and iMovie, and made powerful versions available for the iPad. 
Jobs showed how easy it was to compose and orchestrate a song or put music and special effects into your home videos and post or share such creations using the new iPad. Once again, he ended his presentation with the slide showing the intersection of Liberal Arts Street and Technology Street. And this time, he gave one of the clearest expressions of his credo, that true creativity and simplicity comes from integrating the whole widget, hardware and software, and for that matter, content and covers and sales clerks. Rather than allowing things to be open and fragmented, as happened in the world of Windows PCs and was now happening with Android devices. It's in Apple's DNA that technology alone is not enough. We believe that it's technology married with the humanities that yields us the result that makes our hearts sing. Nowhere is that more true than in these post-PC devices. Folks are rushing into this tablet market and they're looking at it as the next PC, in which the hardware and the software are done by different companies. Our experience, and every bone in our body, says that is not the right approach. These are post-PC devices that need to be even more intuitive and easier to use than a PC, and where the software and the hardware and the applications need to be intertwined in an even more seamless way than they are on a PC. We think we have the right architecture, not just in silicon, but in our organization to build these kinds of products. It was an architecture that was bred not just into the organization he had built, but into his own soul. After the launch event, Jobs was energized, he came to the Four Seasons Hotel to join me, his wife, and Reed, plus Reed's two Stanford pals for lunch. For a change, he was eating, though still with some pickiness. He ordered fresh-squeezed juice, which he sent back three times, declaring that each new offering was from a bottle and a pasta primavera, which he shoved away as inedible after one taste. But then he ate half of my crab louis salad, and ordered a full one for himself, followed by a bowl of ice cream. The indulgent hotel was even able to produce a glass of juice that finally met his standards. At his house the following day, he was still on a high. He was planning to fly to Kona Village the next day, alone, and I asked to see what he had put on his iPad 2 for the trip. There were three movies, Chinatown, The Bourne Ultimatum, and Toy Story 3. More revealingly, there was just one book that he had downloaded, The Autobiography of a Yogi, the guide to meditation and spirituality that he had first read as a teenager, then reread in India, and had read once a year ever since.